This podcast is brought to you by The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. Your host is editor Mike King, and this episode is kindly supported by Fordo. Shipping products as easy as sending emails. In this inaugural episode of the Lodestar podcast, I'll be joined by Lodestar founders Alex Lenane and Gavin Van Marl. We'll be discussing the latest happenings and trends in the global freight and logistics industry, including the ongoing fallout from the Suez Canal closure and just why air cargo markets are going nuts and who is benefiting most. Later, as we look at the ongoing chaos on the Asia-US supply chain, I'll also be speaking to the fabulous Cathy Roberson, Ramon Krishnan, John McCown, Lars Jensen, the National Retail Federation's John Gold, Gene Soroka, the Port of LA's Executive Director, and DAT's Dean Croak. They had to pay $10,000 per container to move these 240-footers from Los Angeles to Orlando to meet the customer deadline. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar Podcast. I'm joined today by Lodestar founders Alex Lenane and Gavin Van Marl. Hello, guys. Hi. Hello, Mike. Now, if I may say so, you've both had these fantastic careers in this madcap industry of ours. Before we turn to what you've been covering this week, may I ask, can you remember anything quite like the market and I guess the disruption that we've had over this past year? I won't embarrass myself by trying to pronounce the name of it, but the Icelandic volcano in uh, 2010 gave us all a bit of an idea of what it would look like if the planes weren't flying. But the big difference was it was regional and it only intermittently closed airspace. I don't want to use the word unprecedented more than it's been used already this year, but this is different from, from anything else we've seen, I would say. Yeah, I'm going to also go back to around 2010, and I'm remembering the peak season that came about 18 months after the collapse of Lehman Brothers. If memory serves correct, it was the first time that container volumes worldwide had dropped for something like 25 odd years. And in in the aftermath of that, of the global financial crisis, there was a, a peak season where everyone was implenishing their inventories. There was a lot of congestion. But basically, it was an exacerbated peak season. Yes, the rates were high, but they're nothing like the sort of rate levels that we're seeing today. I mean, what we have today, according to the Baltic Exchange FBX index, you've got China, US, West Coast rates that are up, what, 250 cent year on year? China, North Europe rates have tripled in a year and people still can't get guaranteed slots without paying premiums. Back in 2010, this this situation lasted for a couple of months. At the moment, it appears endless. Gav, we've had this extended period, as you say, high rates, and it's been very disrupted. Then in late March, we we had more fuel thrown on the fire when the Ever Given blocked the Suez Canal for the best part of a week. I know the insurance saga continues, which the Lodestar has been covering very well. Are shippers having any luck getting their cargo released from the vessel? No, no, they're not. I mean, there's a practical reason for that. The ship is at anchor in the Bitter Lake area of the, uh, midway along the Suez Canal. There are no unloading facilities there. You know, in order to get any cargo off the Ever Given, it has to go into a post-Panamax, a proper post-Panamax container terminal, which has cranes big enough to, to handle those boxes. So there's absolutely no way that any cargo is getting released. And that's before we start talking about general average. I mean, the most recent news has been that the 
that the Suez Canal Authority has reduced its claim, which was originally for $916 million. Despite the fact there's been no damage to the canal, very little damage to the vessel, they've reduced that claim to by $300 million, apparently, according to an interview that the Director General of uh, the Suez Canal Authority gave to Egyptian television. There's been no international official statement otherwise. I mean, shippers are having a nightmare. I've had very interesting correspondence from a Swedish shipper. I won't divulge who it is, but a group of Swedish shippers are so angered by the situation they find themselves in that they're starting to question whether the refusal of the Suez Canal container terminal to release the vessel until its claim has been paid could actually be a form of piracy or sea robbery, which is uh, there are rules dating back to piracy and sea robbery back to the 18th century. They've actually asked the insurer, the UK P&I Club about this so far, the, what they've been told is that the UK P&I Club, that robbery and piracy can only be used against private persons or commercial parties. And since the Suez Canal Authority is a government run organisation, it wouldn't fall under that. However, their argument is that, um, let me, I'm just going to quote you directly. They believe that the authorities are deliberately using the vulnerable situation where the pandemic has caused interruption in supply chains with extremely high freight costs and difficulties to buy space on board ships. And their argument about the refusal to, to it, that the SCA went to get the an Egyptian court to arrest the vessel, for them that signals that the SCA is acting for commercial gains and can thus be defined as acting as a commercial party. So they've contacted legal specialists. I think it's a fascinating thing to to follow going forward because this could change maritime law. Aside from the insurance impact gap, the Suez Canal opened again on the 29th of March. But so many ships had been delayed or rerouted before that. What impact did that then have on European logistics, equipment availability, and also port congestion, which was a big issue even before the sewers was blocked? Yeah, you're right. It was a big issue. And to be honest, it's really hard from any one position to have a, a proper overview of what's going on. I mean, container supply chains were a mess already before the Suez Canal closure. If you talk to the main European gateway ports, they will say, I think Port of Rotterdam put out a press release a couple of days ago saying that I think the headline was we have handled the Suez Armada or something along those sort of lines. So the backlog of ships has largely been cleared up. The effect on container supply chains just still seems to be working through the system, I mean. So then the repercussions of that are we're going to have increased shortages of equipment down the road. There's no sign of equipment shortages letting up. We're based near Felixstone. The, the depots, any spare space of land around the Felixstone Ipswich area in the east of England has piles of containers on them. So you Full can, of PPE. From where you're based, you can see congestion. I'm based near Heathrow. There's not a lot of congestion over here. But Alex, the, the air cargo industry or the airline industry has been hugely disrupted this past year. One of your headlines mentioned volumes and rates going nuts. What's the current situation? Well, I think in the in the charter business, there's been some quite large spikes and some what you might call nutty, nutty rates. At the moment, there's, there's been a slight calming in the market because of the Chinese national holiday at the start of May. Um, but a Shanghai forwarder told me yesterday that the market's changing slightly. It has, for the last two months, has been um, all about the rapid COVID tests. And that's what's coming out of China and going all over the world. And I know this because there's about 10 in my kitchen. But the traffic's now being replaced by much more general cargo and retail because the shops are opening in parts of Europe. And um, there's lockdown restrictions are lifting it and, and so creating different traffic. 
if you look at the Baltic Air Index, rates are sort of bumping along at, a, at the new normal level. I mean, they obviously differs according to trade lane, but they're expected to remain this kind of high for it pretty much for the rest of the year. Um, and that's basically because volumes are 4% higher at the moment than they were in 2019, but capacity is 14% lower. So there's this gap that's driving the rates up. Okay, and imagine those high rates and volumes if you consider the lack of belly hole capacity. I guess that's proving rather beneficial to anyone with a freighter. It it is. We've just seen the um, ocean carrier results, first quarter results, and just the same in air freight. The freighter operators have had an absolutely rocking past year, which will be really nice for them because they get so hit by the down cycles that hopefully it'll protect them a little bit in the future. Um, And the passenger airlines are now making about a third of their revenues from cargo, whereas before it was considerably less. So it's a useful reminder to them really that cargo is an important part of their business. And and the high rates always brings in new capacity and new contenders. So we've got CMA, CGM, the airlines just announced expanded routes. Lessors are converting, temporarily converting passenger aircraft into freighters, stripping out seats, doing anything they can to to make the money and also to provide a bit more capacity. But I would say the most profitable market at the moment that's shifting things a little bit is Asia to North America. And so airlines are moving capacity there to to take advantage of really high rates. I mean, you take IAG cargo, which doesn't have freighters. It's running about five flights a week from Shanghai via London to the US and Canada using really expensive to operate passenger freighters, which it wouldn't do unless the business was there. So I think consumer demand in the US is driving up rates and attracting capacity from all over the world. Fantastic. And as if by magic, it's to the Trans-Pacific we now turn. (laughs) Alex, Gav, thanks for joining us. So the Trans-Pacific, where I think you can make a persuasive case that the extreme nature of demand for international shipments into the US during the COVID pandemic has actually been the key driver of global freight markets this past year. I asked Cathy Robeson, President of Consultancy Logistics Trends and Insights, what the current state of play was in the US for supply chain stakeholders. There are shortages in all kinds of raw materials, and that's driving up those costs as well as delivery. So you add that on top of the problems that are already existing in the transportation networks, starting with ocean freight, and we're all aware of what's going on there, but it's trickled down into the inland part of the U.S. So now it's not only ocean freight that's a problem, as well as air freight. But now we're looking at problems in rail, intermodal, trucking, all the way down to the last mile. And we're seeing delays clear across the board. So is it going to improve before September? It's highly doubtful. My guess is that we may not see improvements until sometime next year. Jonathan Gold, Vice President for Supply Chain and Customs Policy with the National Retail Federation, says retailers are now struggling to cope with the double whammy of surging prices and delivery delays. They're certainly seeing price increases across the board through you know all their transportation needs, whether it's the carrier, the trucker, throughout, they're seeing those increases. Many are, are trying not to pass those along to the consumer, but they do have an impact on the bottom line. And I think to your other question on just where the disruption remains, you know, we're still seeing the disruption overseas with just the, again, the availability of the equipment, the empty containers, the ability for vendors to continue to meet the, the strong demand that we're seeing from the consumers here. The delays we're seeing at port, whether vessels still out at bay or in terminal, the 
ongoing congestion in terminal itself, getting containers out, finding the truckers and chassis. I mean, you're just continuing to see congestion throughout the entire system. To put that market into perspective, the Baltic Exchange's China East Asia to North America index was under $2,000 per FEU a year ago. It's now over $5,000 per FEU. And these are averages as well. So many shippers are paying far higher than this to get their boxes moved and make sure they get a slot. They're also suffering rollovers and guarantee surcharges and a bunch of other charges on top of that from carriers. It's not too different when you look at air freight. The Baltic Air Freight Shanghai Padong to US index was trundling along at less than $2.5 per kilo before the pandemic. It's currently running at just under $9 per kilo. So unprecedented is probably the most overused word in journalism, but that's exactly what all of this is. And while most of the obvious signs of disruption and pricing inflation are apparent in the US, this really is chaos that spans the Pacific. Ramon Krishnan, president of the Singapore-based Logistics and Supply Chain Management Society, who has been working across the logistics industry for more than three decades, spoke to me earlier this week. I asked him if he's ever seen anything like this before. The, the short answer is no, Mike. I think if anyone says that they have actually experienced something like this before over such a prolonged period, I think that they wouldn't be speaking the truth here. Yeah? And whilst we hope that there is light at the end of the tunnel where we expect this to be over soon, when exactly is anyone's guess? If you talk about air freight capacities and volumes, until we have passenger aircraft capacity coming back online or into the market, you're going to still see sky high or you know super expensive air freight rates. Ocean freight rates, I think they'll only start to settle down towards maybe Q4, certainly not in Q2, and very unlikely in Q3, quarter three of this year. But in quarter four, I think we'll start seeing them start to peak off and return to that some level of normalcy as they were perhaps in 2019. But yeah, it's, this is unprecedented. I don't think anyone has, has experienced it before, and I don't think anyone expected it to last this long. I certainly didn't. Ramon, what are the main supply chain bottlenecks and challenges Asian shippers and 3PLs are, are trying to overcome at this moment? I think Trans-Pacific eastbound from Asia to the US that's where we're seeing the most impact. If you can get space, you then have to be able to get a container and there's a shortage of containers. You read about it in the press all the time and you see shipping lines saying they're ordering another 100,000 containers to meet demand, et cetera, et cetera. So Trans-Pacific Eastbound is where I see the greatest impact. But you're seeing bottlenecks or in selected areas, we were just notified, for example, that the Indian subcontinent, because of the increase in cases there, capacity is being taken out of the market. Um, that's aircraft and vessel capacity. And therefore, we're going to expect to see delays into India, also into the Middle East. Just this week, we're saying that we're seeing capacity being taken out there. So it is mainly Trans-Pacific eastbound, but we are seeing spikes here and there every now and then in other sectors as well. Much of the attention of supply chain disruption in its many guises has emerged has focused on vessel queues off the ports of Long Beach and LA. And we'll hear from Port of LA Executive Director Gene Sirocco shortly about efforts to clear those jams. But the ocean delays and stratospheric prices have only been one element of the conundrum facing shippers. Dean Croak, a freight markets analyst at DAT Freight and Analytics, explained what logistics beyond the port looks like in the US right now. As global 
container volumes are surging and we've seen this massive amount of volume on the Trans-Pacific Lane. We see that ports like you know, Los Angeles, for example, volumes are just more than double where they were last year. It's hard to move that much volume on the intermodal network because they've had capacity constraints. Because of the urgency to refill depleted inventories, what's happened is a lot of that surging container volume is being translated into truckload capacity. And on the DAT load board, our load board numbers in April are three times higher than where they were this time last year. And we see that correlation across nearly every port where volumes are up substantially year over year, and it's trickled into our truckload sector because shippers have been desperate to try and get this freight to restock inventories. Now, compounding that has been the shortage of containers back in Asia. So you're seeing a lot more transloading of 40s and 20s and 45s into 53-foot truckload capacity because the shipping companies want those empty containers turned quickly rather than going further inland for an export move. That's impacted our export market, of course, but just focusing on the truckload side, we've seen this massive volume coming into the West Coast. Capacity's been tight nationally anyway because there's a shortage of drivers and a number of other things going on. But that's just meant that we've had more volume. And for shippers, though, they're paying double and triple the rate per mile to move this volume on the West Coast compared to this time last year. Could you give me an example, perhaps, of how that would be playing out in terms of some pricing on that FEU plus truckload? Yeah, it's a fascinating story. I was talking to a 3PL who's moving some bed linen. Bed linen's a huge commodity here in terms of TU imports. He was moving a box. It was ready on the 14th of December. It actually got rolled for two weeks from ship to ship to ship. It ended up moving on the 29th. It got here in 21 days to Port of Los Angeles. So there were two 40-foot containers from Shanghai to Los Angeles. They made it in the three-week transit time, but they lost two weeks on the outbound end in Asia of tight capacity. It sat at anchor off Long Beach, off the San Pedro complex for about two weeks. The challenge was because it sat at anchor for 14 days, it ate into the land side intermodal move. Because they lost that two-week window, by the time it went onto the dock and then it waited around for four days to get cleared because they've got a chassis trailer shortage, they were literally five days from the time it had to be in Orlando. You know, so this is from one side of the country to the other, and they had to move it within this five-day window. And of course, the only option they really were left with once the intermodal move was gone was to put it on a truck, or two trucks in this case, with chassis trailers and, and teams. So you to put two drivers in each truck. So team capacity is obviously much tighter because of the shorter transit time when you've got urgent freight like this. But Mike, the staggering thing was on top of them already paying $9,000 per container to get the, the two out of Asia, like they were already almost double what they would have normally been that's to land it in the US, they had to pay $10,000 per container to move these 240-footers from Los Angeles to Orlando to meet the customer deadline. And so the net of it is that the, the customer lost money on this move and started to question, is it really worth this? But there's been examples like this all across the country where you have this sort of supply chain choke points around ports. It eats into what shippers would normally consider an intermodal move that's quite you know, steady and re reliable, but a cheaper alternative. And they lose that window. And next thing, they've got to push that volume into the truckload market where capacity is already tight and they're going to pay a lot more for that move. 
at the port of LA, Jean Soroka told me on the 5th of May that everyone was doing their best to clear vessel queues and keep cargo moving. Today, here at the port of Los Angeles, we're working 15 container ships, 19 in total. And I will say, Mike, that pre-pandemic or before this surge of imports came to America and spe specifically Los Angeles, we would welcome about 10 container vessels per day. Since the surge began last summer in 2020, we've been averaging 15 container ships every single day. So our birth productivity, the ships coming in and the work of our dock workers is up 50% year on year. Today, the queue looks about half of what it was seven weeks ago. So some of the strategies and tactics that we've put in place seem to be gaining traction. We have 20 container ships outside the breakwater for both the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. 11 of those are destined for LA. So we're tracking better. It's our view now that we've got about 21 ships on the way in addition to these over the next four days. Gene, in terms of those vessel queues and cargo delays, what expectations do you have that you might get back to some sort of normality in time for the Q3 peak season? Is this something you'll have time to play through and work around in the next couple of months? We're going to continue to improve and our goals are pretty lofty. We want to get these anchored vessels down to a few, if any, by the end of May, beginning of June, because you rightly say, Mike, we've got to pivot pretty quickly and start to see our traditional peak season in August. And that will be for our back to school merchandise, our fall fashion season and the year end holidays. So we've really got to make the best use of time that we have right now and continue bringing all these numbers down. What is clear looking forward to the second half of the year is that there is very little indication of demand slowing. What has been called a tsunami of cargo is en route to the US from Asia. Now, the National Retail Federation now expects May and June import volumes to be up 45 and 30% year-on-year -year respectively, with further year-on-year -year gains due in July, August and September. This comes after March volumes totaled 2.27 million TEU, the largest volume total since the NRF started tracking imports in 2002. Clearly, what's been happening has not been seen before and is not over yet. As leading container shipping analyst Lars Jensen, partner at Vespucci Maritime, made clear when discussing the main driver of global container freight rates and supply chain disruption recently. It is not a uniform demand boom. If we were to make this very black and white, it is a US demand boom. Yes, there are other trades that are also growing, but nowhere near what we're seeing in the US. Very basically, the US consumers apparently have decided that when they cannot spend money on services, they want to sit at home and buy enormous amounts of goods that are moved in containers. That is the driver of the boom. There is no indication this boom is over. Furthermore, looking at data just over the last couple of months, not only do we have extremely high growth in the number of containers moved into the US, we are not seeing inventories being built up. So all of this cargo that's been moved in is actually being sold. And that is another indication that boom is not about to be over. So we have an extreme demand, which of course putting port infrastructure under pressure. And is there any sign that this is getting better? The, the conclusion of Lars was a firm no. Dean Croak at DAT is equally lacking in optimism about the ability of trucking and hinterland transport in the US to bounce back with additional capacity to help ease these tight markets. 
Mike, I think we're already at peak capacity. There's a couple of things that are working against us. And of course, they're all pandemic related. When I say working against us, it's the, the supply side of the industry because the pandemic has impacted the equipment manufacturers as much as everybody because they've had absenteeism, physical distancing requirements. But now they're being hit with uh, shortages of components such as semiconductor chips. And that's meant that they're building trucks and parking them until they can get some of the chips in. So what's happened is the lead time on a new truck is now out to 15 months. So all of these record truck orders you're seeing now aren't going to come online until well into 2022. So you've got a, a component supply issue in the supply chain that's affecting new trucks and trailers. We're not going to get the trucks and trailers we need to move more freight, even if we wanted to. The other thing is that we've got you know, there's a shortage of drivers, but there's a shortage of workers in nearly every industry because of the economic stimulus. I think capacity for shippers, it's going to be very tight through the end of this year and into 2022 before we start to see things ease off, because we're about to go through that, that roaring 20s phenomenon where we've got all this pent up demand to go and do things and buy things and travel. All of which means that the ongoing death throwing between shippers and carriers about the fairness of rates is unlikely to diminish anytime soon. John Gold at the NRF was pretty conciliatory towards container lines when asked about rate levels, especially when compared to his peers in Asia and Europe who have been very outspoken on the issue. We've certainly been working with the FMC as well, the Federal Maritime Commission, working with the administration and Congress and just highlighting the ongoing issues that cargo owners are facing throughout the supply chain. Obviously, we worked with the FMC over the past couple of years on their interpretive rule of detention demurrage and want to see them enforce that rule, especially now because a lot of these congestion issues that are beyond the control of the shipper, but yet many are getting still getting hit with detention demurrage charges that we, we think are unreasonable at this point. What is probably beyond doubt on the ocean shipping side is that the current high spot freight rates give container shipping lines a very strong negotiating position with shippers as they conclude ongoing contract negotiations with customers this month and next. John McCown, author, analyst and the former CEO and co-founder of a US flag container shipping company, told me that 3PLs, forwarders and many manufacturers had prospered in the midst of the pandemic, not just container lines. I asked him what elevated spot rates would mean for shippers in negotiations with container lines right now. It means that everybody's going to be paying higher rates. You know, the, the spot rates get a lot of attention in the container business, uh, but they really only move about 10 or 15% of the freight. Um, as you know, most of the freight moves on these annual contracts. But where the spot rates come into play is they become a clear indicator, or I guess you could say if you're on the carrier, it's something that they put in front of their customers. And, and you have many cases where spot rates have doubled or crippled. So that makes uh, perhaps an easier comparison to get your customer to see that there's going to be a 50% increase in their contract rate. John, do you think there's any validity in terms of some shipper claims that they're the victims of carrier profiteering in all of this? I, I really don't look at things, look at the numbers in a broader sense. And, and while the fourth quarter was the best quarter the industry has ever had, uh, from most measures, uh, uh, net income margin, return on capital, um, that quarter still probably was uh, not as good as most of their, their shippers. And, and frankly, probably still not as good as many of the people that rely on the container shipping business. And, and if you were to look at, uh, for instance, the last five years, uh, two of those years had uh, big losses. 2016 had an $8.9 billion loss for the industry, net income. 
I was one of the ones that probably thought at the beginning of the pandemic, this would be like that. As it turned out, you had that great quarter in the fourth quarter on top of a decent third quarter. So 2020 ended up with some 15 billion of total net income. But if you look at that, in terms of the last five years, it was barely above break even. The five-year net income of the industry is around $7 billion. Keep in mind, over those five years, the industry had revenue of about $750 billion. So its five-year income statement is less than 1%. Nobody can say that is profiteering. Certainly, if you're a shipper and you're paying 50%, 60% more for your freight, you don't like that. But to me, it's it's an interesting um, kind of uh, question of, is it a relationship business or is it a transaction business? So I suppose in a sense, you mean that what goes around comes around and it's the carrier's time in the sun. One can say that the uh, the shippers of the world, the Walmarts and the Home Depots and the Targets, when... The advantage was on their side, they certainly took advantage of of the low rates. There wasn't a lot of um, concern, you know, when the carriers were losing money that, uh, you know, we need to give you a higher rate. So uh, I I recognize that there's a lot of disruption and a lot of chaos and and a lot of consternation, you know, among shippers. And that's even flowed over in terms of some of the regulators in terms of what's going on here in the U.S. But from a carrier standpoint, it's been what looked like it could be a, a black swan event has turned into a golden swan event. The shipper-carrier relationship on the Trans-Pacific trade and on every other trade is, of course, something we'll be returning to in later episodes of the Lodestar podcast, which I should add is now available on all major podcast platforms. So please subscribe. You can also follow the latest news and all of the issues that we've covered today on the Lodestar.com and Lodestar Premium. I'd like to thank our sponsor Forto for supporting this episode. An additional shout to the Baltic Exchange for giving us exclusive access to their fantastic range of regulated indices. And a big thanks also to my editing team, Tom Matthews and Karen Ball. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back soon.